And it is another week. This is Andrew Wood, Executive Director of Hope Resource Center. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether that be live over at Joy620 or you're listening to the podcast at investinghope.com, Google Play, Pod, uh, Podbeam, iTunes, wherever podcasts are found, you can find this show. we got a lot to talk about this week because this week's a big deal. December 1st, Wednesday, the U.S. Supreme Court will hear oral arguments in the case Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. Now, we have talked about uh, this particular case for months now. Uh, this is, for the first time in decades, really for the first time since 1992, uh, this is the biggest chance that we have to see Roe overturned uh, or confirmed. I mean, it is, this is the first time in a long time that there's been a court case at the Supreme Court level dealing specifically with uh, viability and with uh, abortion and, and what some would call abortion rights. Uh, and the issue of life. And so we're going to dive into that today because I think we should, and I think we should uh, take the time uh, to do it. We're going to finish in the last segment. We're going to talk about how you can pray for, uh, how you can get involved in, and, and pray for the judges, pray for those involved, and pray for pregnancy centers like Hope Resource Center uh, as we move forward. I want to start today with a piece over at um, uh, 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 ncronline.org. Uh, this is a Catholic website that talks about uh, life issues, and it's an interesting one because it's putting into perspective how we are to view uh, this case, uh, how we are to view this case as believers, how we are to view this case as pro-life advocates, how we are to view those that oppose us, how we are to view our opponents when it comes to life uh, and abortion. And so at issue on uh, December 1st, on Wednesday, is a Mississippi law that lowers the current point at which a state can ban abortions from 24 or 25 weeks. The viability standard set by the court in 1992, uh, Planned Parenthood versus uh, Casey, uh, to 15 weeks. So it is possible the court will go further and strike down the baseline holding of its 1973 decision in Roe v. Wade establishing a constitutional right to an abortion. The hardest part about writing on the abortion issue is the knowledge that nothing you write is likely to change anyone's mind. The issue is profoundly emotional, and emotions tend to becloud, not facilitate rational moral analysis. The Mississippi law prohibits abortions after 15 weeks, except in cases of medical emergency or a severe fetal abnormality. In the event, Jackson's women's health organizations did not perform abortions after 16 weeks, and in 2018... Uh, according to the CDC, 93% of all abortions in Mississippi were performed before 14 weeks and 75% before 10 weeks. When the court decided last May to hear the Dobbs case, NARAL Pro-Choice America, one of the nation's leading abortion rights advocacy organizations, said this. They said, there is no path for the Supreme Court to uphold Mississippi's abortion ban without overturning Roe's core holding illustrating the direct and acute threat to reproductive freedom across the country, end quote. That is hyperbole. A ban at 15 weeks is hardly the stuff of patriarchal uh, tyranny. By way of comparison, abortion laws in Europe vary. The Netherlands has one of the most liberal set of laws permitting abortion up to until 24 weeks, with a five-day cooling-off period after consultation with a doctor. Most European Union countries have earlier cutoffs in the 10 to 14 week range with exceptions for the life and health of the mother as well as fetal abnormality. Ireland had very restrictive laws, even threatening women who procure an abortion with long prison terms. But in 2016, 
The country's voters overwhelmingly decided to permit abortion up until the 12th week of pregnancy. So when pro-choice activists complain that the Mississippi law threatens to push them back into some patriarchal dystopia, do they mean to suggest that the women of Europe are without rights? That they live in such a state of radical unfreedom? On the other hand, if the abortion clinic in Mississippi already prohibits abortions at 16 weeks, arguments about late-term abortions are not germane. Images of third-trimester unborn children are deceptive in terms of the Mississippi law, but you can be sure those images will be displayed on placards outside the Supreme Court building on December 1st. Hyperbole can exist on all sides of this debate. It is in an important essay in the New York Times, Claremont McKenna's College's John Shields argued that the principal reason the abortion debate has remained central to the culture wars, while other social issues like sex education and gay rights are mostly no longer really contentious, is that both sides in the abortion fight appeal to the liberal tradition's emphasis on rights. He said this, Thus, the pro-life movement endures precisely for the same reason that the pro-choice movement does. Both are nurtured by our own common rights-oriented culture. It is a rare fight in American history in which people on both sides think of themselves as human rights activists called to expand the frontiers of freedom and equality. I think there is more to it than that, but he has a point. In an American consumer culture, when you get an issue framed in terms of individual choice, you tend to win. The more to it than that is the uh, deep-seated worldviews that are at stake. A pro-choice friend who is active in the labor movement told me that while he knows many union members disagree with the official position of the AFL-CIO on immigration, they also know the union leadership is appealing to the better angels of their nature. Abortion is different. People with whom we agree on most political issues can not only oppose us on this issue, they are flummoxed by the opposition. It is why the AFL-CIO has never taken a stance on the issue. Shields also argued that compromise was possible and that the Mississippi law might embody the, king, the kind of compromise we could all live with. Unfortunately, power, interests, and organizations require the uh, perpetuation of the fight, not its resolution. That's what I've talked about multiple times on this show, that the, the goal, whether it be abortion or Second Amendment or many of these rights we talk about, the, the goal from a politician's standpoint is to keep this car moving down the, the road. It is, it is the dog chasing the tire illustration, that they never want to catch the, the car. They just like the chase. That is why politicians do what they do. They want to keep us riled up, but never really make a move either way. Still, pro-life leaders should be forewarned that if the court overturns Roe in its entirety and allows states to entirely ban the procedure, the political backlash will be severe. And once the conservative majority goes down the road, where will it end? Will the 1964 Griswold case, which also rested on the right to privacy, unmentioned but implicit in the Constitution, be in danger too? That decision overturned Connecticut's ban on contraception. As Catholics, we must always oppose the taking of human life. This is, of course, the article, speak, the, the writer speaking. As Catholics, we must always defend the inherent dignity of women and affirm their rights. I have long believed that any effort to change the law before we in the pro-life movement had changed the culture would be doomed to fail. We must make abortion unthinkable and unnecessary before making it illegal. So how to get there? Now, some may agree or disagree with that. Uh, you know, is it the cart before the horse kind of thing? The goal ultimately is to see abortion ended, regardless of how we get there. The reality is, if we're not prepared for that day, then yeah, it's going to be a mess. And so the question is, are we prepared? Are we supporting pregnancy centers? Are we supporting uh, moms? Are we adopting? Are we fostering? Are we doing our part 
so that when abortion goes away in the state of Tennessee or, or maybe the state that you live in, are we prepared to step up and take care of those that are facing unplanned pregnancies? Because just because abortion goes away doesn't mean unplanned pregnancies go away. Are we prepared? Are we prepared? And when these court cases come up, are we full of anger? Are we full of hate toward the other side? And I'm talking to pro-choicers and pro-lifers here. Look, I disagree with anyone that, that says they stand for abortion. It's wrong. It's immoral. It's a travesty. Lives are being lost because of it. And men and women are carrying the burden of making that decision for years and years and years down the road. So even when we look at what happened in Texas, 100 to 150 babies have been saved every single day because of the law that was passed in Texas. Now, some may disagree with the law and the way it was crafted. But the fact of the matter is babies are living because that law is in place. Abortionists are not performing abortions because that law is in place. And so some may argue, well, we got to get the culture fixed before we can get the law fixed. Some may argue we got to get the law fixed before we can get the culture fixed. What I would say is there's somewhere in between. But look, the reality is if we're going to sit and wait for the culture to change and not pass any laws protecting life, then, then we're going to be uh, greatly disappointed. Again, our hope is not in laws. But our culture is going one direction. Now, if we had a Christian culture, a gospel-centric culture, a moral-centric culture, then yeah, maybe we could wait. And we could say, look, the, the, the law will come down the road, but we're going to get to a place where abortion is unthinkable in, in our uh, civilized society. The reality is we are, uh, I don't know if we're an immoral Culture. We're certainly an amoral culture. We're a culture that's going in the wrong direction. We're a culture that uh, attacks our enemies. We're a culture that sees each other as uh, not as neighbors that, that deserve love and care, but a culture that sees our neighbors as labels. Oh, they're a Democrat or they're a Republican. They're vax or, or non-vax or they're for mask or not for mask or they're Christian or not Christian or, or they're Muslim or not Muslim or they're atheist or not atheist. They're transgender or not transgender. And so when, when we're dealing with all of that as a culture, I, I don't expect a secular culture to just all of a sudden go, you know what, it is... Uh, deplorable what we're doing to unborn babies in the womb. I don't expect them to get there by themselves. Why is that? Because we're not a gospel-centered culture. We're not a theocracy. And, and if, if we're arguing from a gospel-biblical perspective that life has value, but also we believe the science says life has value, Life begins at conception. Life deserves protection. Our Constitution says you, are, uh, you have the right to pursue happiness, the right to life. It actually says that. 
Everything points to abortion being wrong. But we have a culture that says otherwise. And we have a court that said otherwise in 1973 and in 1992. And so here in 2021, we have an opportunity. And although I want us to see a day where abortion is not simply illegal but unthinkable, I'm not going to look to the court and say, hey, kick the can down the road, don't make a decision right now. No, we we can't do that. I'm going to look to the court and say, make the right decision. Not based on public opinion. We talked about a, a week or two ago that judges don't, they're not voted in, these Supreme Court justices. So they don't make decisions based on public opinion. They don't make decisions based on what Twitter says or what Facebook says or, or what the mob says. They make decisions based on what the Constitution says. And if a court decided years ago to do something and the current court decides that that decision from 73 or 1992 was unconstitutional and was the wrong decision, then they should overturn it. And that is what they should do here. They should overturn it. Now, I don't know if they will. But I sure hope they will. But as we have these conversations and as we have these debates, we don't have to malign the other side. We don't have to be hateful and angry. We just have to state the facts. The facts are every life has value. In and out of the womb. The fact is, life begins at conception. We know that. The medical journals know that. The doctors know that. OBs know that. Sure, it's tough to see a baby be born into a terrible situation where the, the mom is addicted to drugs or an abusive relationship or, or dad is, has run away or stepped out. All, the, all of those things are tough. But it doesn't mean it's okay to end the life of that child because they're going to be born into tough circumstances. That's where we are to step up and ease those tough circumstances. That's where we do at Hope Resource Center. We try to remove those obstacles and be the support group that mom needs, that family needs, that baby needs. That's what we are called to do. We'll talk more when we come back. Anyone else playing Christmas music, or is it just me? I mean, I've been playing it since September, but that's Brett Eldridge. And I'm telling y'all, I, I could do hours of shows based on what what Christmas album you should be adding to your playlist. Google Brett Eldridge. Find his album on iTunes, Spotify, wherever wherever you get your albums. Buy a CD, whatever you do. Get his Christmas album. He's got two. Both of them are great. First one's better. It's called Glow. Highly, highly recommended. If you're a fan of Michael Buble, you'll like uh, Brett Eldridge. There's so many good, good Christmas albums out there. You can go old, old school with like Dolly and Kenny, Alabama, uh, Oak Ridge Boys. All of those should be in 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 your shuffle. Uh, Michael Buble, obviously. Uh, but there's so much good stuff out there. Don't miss the new stuff. The new stuff's very good. And what Brett Eldridge does is he sings the old classic Christmas and he adds a couple of his own takes that, that are going to be in our playlist for a long time. Carrie Underwood also has a great Christmas album. 
Uh, if you haven't gotten that, you should. Uh, again, I'm not, I'm not here to talk about that today, but add it to your playlist. Uh, you'll thank me later. As we continue the conversation looking at uh, the, the court case this week uh, con- concerning Mississippi and abortion, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feature some, some articles on here that uh, hopefully will make you think, uh, get us to a place of, of understanding what's happening, how to view those that disagree with us, and how to view the courts as they make the decision. There's a piece over at National Review called Women Do Not Rely on Abortion. And uh, and here's here's what it says. It says Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey hang by a thin thread of reliance. Chip away at Casey's assertion that women rely on abortion for their participation in economic and social life, and there is not much left on the cases that have distorted constitutional interpretation and held U.S. politics hostage for nearly 50 years. Now think about that. That that women rely on abortion for their participation in economic and social life. My wife has four children with me, she participates just fine in economic and social life. We got married at 22 years old. A lot of people would have said that was crazy. You shouldn't have done that. Had our first child at 27, and then every two years we had another child. My wife is a small business owner. She works at a surgical center for animals. She's doing just fine in the social life aspect as well. So, so this argument that it that it is a burden to have a child and that women can't meet their potential if they're moms, that's a lie from hell. Now, yeah, if you're in a single-parent home, it's going to be tough. It's not going to be easy, certainly. But when you create this victim mindset of, of I can't be a mom and achieve my dreams and goals, well, that's not true. First off, culture would say that that even if you're a woman and your dream and goal is to have kids, that, that that is nonsense and you need to go chase something else. You know, because culture calls us to do what makes you happy. Culture calls us to be selfish. It wants us to be selfish. But we've been built and made for something so much greater than that. The article continues, the basic assumption underlying Casey's account of reliance interest is that children are an impediment to women's equality. To be the equals of men, women need to engage in market work at the same rate and pace as men do. But the market requires unencumbered workers. Women must be unencumbered to participate, free from the demands of pregnancy and child rearing. Baked into this view is a materialist account of sex equality that elevates the goods of the market above the culturally essential formation of persons and families, which makes healthy markets possible. But to undermine Casey's reliance claim, we need not even make this larger philosophical case. Casey's account of abortion reliance fails even on its own grounds. To understand why we ought to focus is on the key passage in Casey. For two decades of economic and social developments, people have organized intimate relationships and made choices that define their views of themselves and their places in society. In reliance on the availability of abortion in the event that contraception should fail. The ability of women to participate equally in the economic and social life of the nation has been facilitated by their ability to control their reproductive lives. That is what they said in that case. The court makes two claims here. One, as regards the uh, interplay of abortion and contraception. The other, as regards women's equal participation in economic and social life. 
These two are interconnected, but we would do well to decouple them for a spell, to look more closely at each and ask whether reliance upon the right bestowed in Roe is as good for women's social economic equality as the Casey Court presumes. At first glance, the relationship between contraception and abortion seems straightforward. No contraceptive method is foolproof. Therefore, for women to control their reproductive lives, abortion must be readily available as a backup. And yet, the truth is not so simple. Economists tell us that the contraception-abortion relationship is a basic lesson in moral hazard. Easy access to abortion disincentivizes people from guarding against the risk of pregnancy inherent in sexual intercourse. And this makes sense of data on abortion rates over the decades. In the period just after Roe, when abortion was made readily available, abortion rates spiked. And not only because women could access overnight a procedure that had been more or less legally prohibited, Rather, with abortion available as a backstop to contraception, individuals engaged engaged in more sexual risk-taking. And lo and behold, more risk-taking resulted in more children conceived, and increasingly outside of marriage. Thus, after Roe, greater numbers of women aborted, but the non-marital birth rate exploded too. For not all women are willing to end the lives of their children. Ironically, in the world that Roe created, the risk of sex and the responsibilities of having children have been assumed disproportionately by women. For far too many men, children are no longer part of the sexual bargain. But after Casey permitted states more leeway in regulating abortion, abortion rates fell, and not only because the procedure became marginally more difficult to procure. People changed their sexual behavior as a result of a change in the laws. As University of Pennsylvania uh, economist Jonathan Click summarized, the the studies on abortion policy and sexual behavior, individuals, even young individuals, whose sexual behavior is often considered to be driven more by emotion than by calculation, are sensitive to the cost of the sexual activity. When those costs increase, individuals engage in less risky sex. Following this logic, were Roe overturned and abortion more restricted, people would take greater care to avoid sex than when they do not want a baby, or they would otherwise seek effective technological means to decouple sex from baby making. Indeed, in the wake of Texas Heartbeat Law, we've seen proof of concept, at least on social media. Abortion is banned in Texas. Sex strike. Or abortion is banned in Texas. Contracept. This is all to say that those urging more consistent contraceptive use would do well to recognize that relying on abortion as a backstop is harming their cause. Alan Guttmacher, president of Planned Parenthood when the organization was still anti-abortion and pro-contraception, saw this clearly in the years before Roe. They said this, when an abortion is easily obtainable, contraception is neither actively nor diligently used. If organizing intimate relationships and reliance on abortion isn't working very well for reproductive control, it is not likely to be facilitating women's advancement either. The very idea of relying on abortion for women's equality would seem to have a rather nefarious historical analog. When Elizabeth Warren, then a Democratic presidential candidate, hailed abortion rights as economic rights, and when both state officials and corporate uh, consultants speak of the business case for abortion, is not the logic eerily parallel to how Democratic legislatures in the South justified slavery? Slaveholders relied on enslaving black human beings for their economic well-being. Women workers, we are told, rely on ending the lives of their unborn children for the same. But the Casey court didn't make the case, and in the decades since, there is no good evidence for the court's assertion that abortion is necessary for women's advancement. While there is no doubt that lower rates of fertility do correlate with higher rates of education and employment for women, there is no evidence that abortion, 
rather than fertility regulation of various kinds, is specifically correlated with women's astonishing educational and professional advances over the decades. Anti-discrimination law had already begun to remove legal impediments to women's full participation in economic and social life before Roe. And as abortion rates have fallen uh, in recent decades, women's extraordinary gains have continued apace. And yet, Roe and Casey and the equality arguments that pro-choice feminist scholars and politicians employ in support of them bear some blame for the fact that workplaces remain deeply inhospitable to women and increasingly to men with children. We'll continue that when we come back. I'll be home for Christmas. So as we continue the conversation, uh, this piece over at National Review is, is you worth your time. And I do want to finish it and then, and then kind of talk about it from there. It continues, the earliest women's rights advocates in, the, in this country knew that for women to participate more fully in the economic and social life of the nation, the nation would need to become far more hospitable to children and the women who bear them. The first woman to run for president in the United States in 1872 was not only an outspoken advocate of constitutional equality for women, she also advocated the rights of children, rights that, as she said, began while yet they remain the fetus. Victoria Woodhull and the women's rights advocates of her time knew that 19, knew what 1970s feminist advocates of abortion would come to forget. The advancement of women will be possible only when the dignity of their children, born and unborn, is protected. What a great statement. The advancement of women will be possible only when the dignity of their children, born and unborn, is protected. What a society we live in that their response and their their uh, solution to women achieving economic success in our country is to end the life of their child. Think about that. You know, we, we have a society and culture that uh, demonizes those that want to have a lot of kids. There was an article just a few weeks ago talking about they were interviewing a family, a family of, I think they had seven or eight kids. And they were talking about inflation. And this family was saying that, you know, we, we go through a lot of milk at our house. And inflation and the cost of milk going up, that, that means we're having to spend, you know, $100, $200 extra a week. And, and if you saw on social media, a lot of people attack this family. How dare them have so many kids? How much milk are they drinking? How dare this? How dare that? What, what are they doing? Don't they know how babies are made? This family not only had their own kids, they were fostering and adopting other kids. And, and all because they said that, that the milk price going up means that their grocery bill goes up. They were maligned. And, and it wasn't they, hey, yeah, inflation is hitting families hard. That wasn't the conversation. The conversation was, how dare they have so many kids? So we live, in this, we live in this time where you have one side of the aisle saying, well, if you were really pro-life, you would adopt and foster children. Well, in this case, we have a family that's choosing to adopt and foster children, which means their family is big. And then they make those decisions and they're doing their part to step up and take care of children that don't have homes. And then they're being attacked for having too many children. What, what's the response? What, what's the answer? To end the life of those kids? 
Now, if, if somebody came up and said, what needs to happen is you have, you have seven kids, uh, well, you only need four, you only need three. So we're going to get rid of your others. Is that the answer? Of course that's not the answer. You'd be looked like a psychopath. But while those kids are in the womb, that is what we do as a society. We say you'll never be able to reach your economic success and potential. If you have that child, you should end the life of that child. Get rid of that blob. You don't need it. So the answer for them in getting us to a place where women can have the same advancement in, in, in education and in uh, socioeconomic roles and, and economic success and all that, the answer to them is ending the life of children. But they ignore all the data that's in front of them, that more women are going to college and graduating college than men. More women, women are getting second or getting advanced degrees than men. And what we also know is the studies show that when abortion is prevalent and, and easy, easily accessible, then sexual risk behaviors go up. Why? Because now they're not depending on contraception. They're depending on abortion. They don't have to depend on contraception. It's not as if, well, well birth control isn't going to work. It's, I don't even have to take birth control because I can have an abortion. And now people will say nobody does that. The vast majority of abortions are done out of convenience, not out of life of the mother, rape, incest, anything like that. It's done out of convenience. And the studies, the data shows it. Even in Texas, they, they made the argument for us. In Texas, they passed a law that outlaws abortion. Abortionists are no longer providing abortions in Texas at the moment. And the pro-abortion advocate's response is, have a sex strike. Take more contraception. So if abortion goes away, their argument is, be less risky with your sexual behaviors. Try not to get pregnant. Hmm, imagine that. They're calling for abstinence because the abortion is gone away in Texas. And they don't see any irony in that. And so if we want women to, to reach those success metrics that, that society has put in place, which most women have, the answer isn't get rid of your children. We simply need to make the environment in workplaces and around our society and culture better for moms and dads. But no, we don't do that. We shame them. My wife went back to her job after having our fourth child and was shamed. Which is no while she, that's why she's no longer there. She came home crying multiple days after maternity leave, and I said, just quit, just stop. This isn't worth it. But shaming her because she needs to go pump so she can have breast milk for her child. Shaming her by saying things like, y'all know how babies are made, right? Four kids, really? Four kids? Shaming her because she wants to get off on time to be home with her children. Oh, well, so-and-so is going to stay till 7. You want to leave at 5? 
You know, you really need to get your priorities in line, family or work. What are we doing as a society? That that is what we elevate and celebrate. That, that's nonsense. It's the same thing I tell the staff at Hope. We can't claim to be pro-life if we're not pro-life for our staff and in our building. We've got to create an environment that is, of, uh, is a way of celebrating motherhood and fatherhood. Are we prepared to do that? I don't know. But as we move forward, I do want us to, to think about how we can pray this week. So, so as I, I put some thoughts together, and it's going to be released this week for the ERLC, I hope. Uh, this is kind of in the draft form, but I wanted to share it with you. So as we look to the Dobbs case uh, that's, that's going to happen on Wednesday... Our goal as leaders in the Pregnancy Center movement is to encourage the reader to spend some time over the next few weeks and months in prayer for the justices, the attorneys, the organizations on the ground serving women, and most importantly, the women facing unplanned pregnancies that are walking through the doors of of close to 3,000 pregnancy centers in this country. It is often easy for us to get caught up in the politics of the day. The abortion topic is one that drives many of us to our political corners. This drive is not all bad as there is much at stake on life and abortion in the political sphere. However, this drive must not stop at the legislative halls in our states or in our nation's capital. We, as Christians, must not place our hope in politicians, judges, or presidents. We engage, certainly, in the political square, but our hope must rest in the creator of the universe, as he, like Psalm 50 points out, owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Knowing this beautiful truth is freeing for the believer. It is freeing for the pregnancy center director, staff member, and volunteer. Our God calls us to pray. He desires for our burdens to be brought to him. We see this clearly in 1 Thessalonians 5, as Paul says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So if you would allow us, we would like to assist in guiding you to pray in the coming weeks. This guide does not provide an exhaustive list of needs, but we believe that it is a great launching point for God's people to join in unison as we seek the end of abortion in our country and ultimately around our globe. So first, let's pray for the justices. Their job is one of ever-growing responsibility as they attempt to navigate the muddy waters of legislation, rights, public opinion, and the Constitution. It is easy for us to pile on when decisions don't go our way, but far harder for us to realize that these men and women have families, friends, and normal life routines just like we do. Pray for courage, wisdom, and grace for these nine that will hear this case. Pray for the attorneys. There are a number of attorneys and attorneys general preparing for this case. It is not lost on us that this case is a hinge point for our republic and for the rights of the unborn moving forward. We can't imagine the pressure these men and women are feeling as they prep, study, and prep some more. Please pray for peace, courage, and stamina for them. Pregnancy centers. Pregnancy centers are doing the work every single day across this country. Providing services. Providing ultrasounds. Providing material assistance. Taking care of these women and their babies. Pray for them. Pray for the staff. Pray for the volunteers. Pray for the the supporters. Pray for us. Pray for the women facing unplanned pregnancies. Women that are that are dealing with this. That are facing the struggles. That are that are facing uh, the uphill battle that is an unplanned pregnancy. Pray for these moms that they would find a support system. Pray for their children. Pray for the, the the guy that's involved. Pray that he would step up and bear responsibility as well. 
We take prayer seriously at Hope Resource Center in Knoxville. We start every day calling out to our God for his loving hand as we serve as image bearers both in and out of the womb. We are grateful for your support and honored to serve alongside you for the work of the gospel and for life. That is what you can do as we move forward. Pay attention to what's going on in the courts, but pray that God would intervene. We'll be back. So as we finish up today, look, we, we've been building up this uh, this Supreme Court case. We've been talking about it for months. And it's finally happening this week, December 1st, Wednesday. Uh, they're going to be taking up this case. They're going to be hearing from folks. Now, we won't know the response or the, the result for a while. Uh, but, but there's going to just prepare yourself. There's going to be pundits on both sides uh, talking about the, the, the deliberations and trying to get a sense, well, this judge asked this and that judge asked that, and clearly that means they're for or against. And you're going to have folks saying, clearly this means Roe is over. Clearly this means Roe is going to be uh, here to stay. I don't know the answer. And it's going to be hard not to get caught up in all that. We love drama. That's why Law & Order has been on, on TV for my entire life. Because we love the drama. We love the court scene. We love the judge and the, the attorneys going back and forth. And we love the plaintiff and the, uh, all of those things. We like all of that. And it provides the drama. And for us, this case, the, the abortion, Roe v. Wade, all of that. This is like checking all the boxes. What I would ask for you to do is, is as we move forward, pray for what's happening. Understand that regardless of what the court decides, we still have work to do. If Roe stays in place, we keep moving. If Roe goes away, we keep moving, folks. The unplanned pregnancy is not going away. It's not. We still have work to do. We still have kids that need to be taken care of. We still have moms that need to be taken care of. But I'm going to let you know if Roe is overturned, it, we're going to see we're going to see protests. We're going to see uh, a lot of lashing out. We're going to see attacks. You know, people are going to threat to stack the court. They're, you're going to see threats of legislation to uh, codify Roe and make abortion legal uh, from a federal level. I don't think they have the votes for that. But you're going to see a push for that. You're going to hear things like pro-lifers don't care, which just couldn't be further from the truth. You're going to hear pregnancy centers be maligned. But sometimes doing the hard thing is worth it. And so as we move forward and as we have those conversations and as we pray and as we, as we do all of those things, it is worth your time and effort. Partner with your local pregnancy center. If you're, if you're here in the state of Tennessee, wherever you are, we love for your partnership at Hope, but there's other pregnancy centers in the state that, that could use your help. So if you're listening in the Nashville area or the Memphis area or uh, Johnson City area, wherever that may be, there, there are folks around you that need your help. If you're listening in Alabama, if you're listening in Georgia, or name the state, there are pregnancy centers in your state doing great work. Step up and help them. Great ones in Ohio, in Florida, in Oregon, in Washington, California. So wherever that may be, step up and help with your time, with your prayers, with your treasure. How are you ending this year? Are you sending in money to your pregnancy center to help them? Are you providing clothes and, and needs for these moms and their babies and their families? 
look, this is going to require something of us. We want to see abortion ended, certainly. But it requires work. You know, social media has made it where we can just uh, pontificate and yell and scream at each other, but not really do anything. You know, that's why when we when they talk about climate change and, and how much of a, a threat it is to our society and our globe, then they fly 40-something jets to go meet in person when they could have done it via Zoom. Because it's not really about ending anything or making changes. It's about the show. And so, so are we about the show or are we about making changes? And I hope when it comes to the life issue, we're about making changes. It's not about the show. There's other shows we could do. But for us, we'd prefer to provide the services, provide the care for those in need. So how are you helping? You can help us at Hope by going to investinghope.com. Click the Donate button. We're going to be sending out. We have sent out year-end mailers. You should be seeing that in your mailboxes soon. If you didn't get one, uh, reach out to us at, uh, at investinghope.com, and we will get one in the mail to you to kind of give you a recap of, of what's happened over the year, where we're going. Also, we're going to be releasing some videos in the, in the coming days and weeks, uh, kind of doing the same thing, recapping and, and, and pointing us forward. And so would encourage you to find those on our social media pages and on our website as well. We're grateful for your, for your partnership. We're, we hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Uh, we're grateful for you. Thank you so much for partnering with us and allowing us to do the work that we do in making hope and life a reality for so many. We'll talk to you next week.